I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to The Literary Life. My guests today are Albert Woodfox and Corrine Williams. Albert Woodfox's memoir, Solitary, is as transformative, moving, and important as any book that I've ever read. Although I was somewhat familiar with the outline of Albert's story, this book gives us a deep dive into the complete perversion of our criminal justice system, and it left me stunned. Solitary is both a call to action and a remarkable account of how one man sustained himself against odds that would defeat most of us by turning his anger into activism and resistance. I guarantee that all of you out there will be talking about Albert's book when you read it for years and years to come. Welcome, Albert Woodfox, and welcome, Corrine. Thank you for, thank you for having life. us. Corrine is one of the lawyers who worked very tirelessly on Albert's behalf uh, to get him released from Angola. Albert, as we talk about solitary, what I thought would be a really good way to start for people who may not know the book is to talk about just what your journey was to solitary, um, starting from the beginning almost. Well, you know, uh, I guess the beginning started in, in New York mm. in, in the Manhattan House of Detention. And, uh, I was fighting the extradition. I had been sentenced 50 years and the very same day well, let's talk about that. You were sentenced to 50 years. You were living in New Orleans at the yes. time, right? And you were sentenced for armed robbery for 50 years. Yes. Louisiana, most people don't know that. Louisiana is a police state that has what's called multiple offender act. At least that's what it was called in that time. And which, if you were convicted of uh, one or more felonies, they can increase uh, your time from hundreds of years all the way up to natural life. And prior to that, armed robbery only carried like five years, and that was kind of like 
the most that someone can live in our life could, could get to them. And so a lot of guys, knowing that they can only get five years, they go to trial. And it was costing the state a lot of money because they knew, even if they found, were found guilty, they would only get five years. So in turn, the state's response to that was multiple offender in which if you was convicted for one or more felonies, they could enhance your sentence. Was that one or more felonies simultaneously or one after no, another? No, just period. So it was like three strikes and you're out kind of thing. Yeah, well that's exactly what they started right. calling it, but at that time they were calling it multiple offender. Right. And so... So facing that 50 years, you decided to do what any normal person would do. Yeah, I ran left. I had a chance to escape, and, and I right. took advantage of it, and I escaped, and eventually, you know, I wound up in Harlem because I knew Harlem, and, you know, uh, Elvis uh, Cleaver wrote a book called Soul on Nice, and in there he talks about a territory imperative, you know, people being drawn to every because of their familiarity with it and, and stuff. So, you know, I knew Harlem because I, in my, in my uh, criminal life, you know, I had been to Harlem a lot of times uh, for various, uh, about drugs and stuff like right. that. So eventually I, you know, migrated uh, from New Orleans to Atlanta and then to uh, Harlem, New York. And then the Harlem you found was a little bit different yeah, than the Harlem you remember. You know, uh, we all know that Black Panther Party had right. uh, Exploded on the scene in 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 '66, and uh, and talk. You talk very eloquently in the book about just what that experience with the Black Panthers meant to you. Would you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, uh, the book we have called "Different Drum" was the actual first step in the journey of and. Uh, there was an incident called Panther 21, in which the New York City Police had uh, attacked the uh, Black Panther Party headquarters. And there, there was a uh, shootout and stuff. So 21 members of the Panther Party had been arrested. And uh, what happened is uh, they put four of the members being housed on the eighth floor. And so they put four of the numbers there in the same cell block I was in. And a guy named Alfred Kane was in leadership position. I'm sorry to say he passed away. Did you, did you, you didn't get caught up in the Panther 21, right? No, no. You, I was already in jail. You were in jail because they, you were, they, had, they had captured you for the, when you fleed from yes. New Orleans. So you happened to be there and then the Panthers were in the tombs with you at the time. Yeah, they put them on, I, I, I was on the 8th floor. Right. And they put them in there, and on each, each floor has a, like four cell blocks, you know, they, you know, two facing the other two. And so they put them on the wing I was on. And, uh, you know, right off the difference, you know, uh, you could see that it was something dif different about these men. Uh, they started talking about uh, unity and, 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 and what we in the struggle and social change. And I was hearing, you know, I was listening to what they're saying, but I wasn't hearing, you know, uh, what they were saying. And 
another prisoner. Oh, the term old time applies when you've done a decade in prison. And we uh, came in, in, I think it was Danamont in upstate New York, right. on the writ. Uh, he had a 25 and sentence. So he had did 25, so he had a petition to court for release. And uh, he says, uh, I have a book I that I want to read. And the book is different drums. And uh, I read that book, and without being conscious, the next time they had a, a political class, uh, I started hearing what they were saying. I started understanding that, you know, I didn't, I didn't think very much of myself at that time. You know, I was living by uh, the code of uh, the game, as they call it, uh, the criminal life. And uh, I had a, uh, you know, uh, in, in, the, in the game, you either, you either want to be the victim or the victimized. Right. And I had such a personality that I had no intention of being a victim. And ironically, the book, A Different Drummer, we've just discovered is being reissued. After being, it was written in 1962, and after being out of print for so long, it's being it's being reissued. Uh, the book is by William Kelly, William Melvin Kelly, who died about a year or two ago. And if you could let me know, let us know the essence without going into the whole plot, because we don't want to give spoiler alerts there. But what was it that struck you about that book immediately? Uh, the second character, uh, he. Uh, he had a great deal of influence in, in, in uh, the black community, without really realizing. And he set a standard of conduct and, and, and the way he carried himself and everything. He just did, you know, he didn't uh, act the way most blacks acted during uh, those times. He was very proud, very independent. He had a strong sense of who he was. and. Uh, and you saw some of those same traits in some of the Black Panther folks that you yes. met as well. Yes. So you didn't, you didn't, you said earlier that you heard them, but you didn't really hear them. But they, but it was well, somewhere. In, what they were saying. But it was somewhere inside of you. Yeah. So then you ended back. You were extradited, right? Yeah. But and, before that, I, I was involved in both riots, if you want to call it. In the tunnels. Yeah. One in uh, a Manhattan house detention. And then the other one, I would, they transformed me from there because they say I was a ringleader. And they moved me to a New Queens House of Detention. Did you actually join the Black Panther Party? Well, not yet. Yeah. But in the eyes of the administration, I was. You were. And anyone, any black person who showed any sense of resistance. A backbone, yeah. Well, was automatically called black. It was part of the federal government's propaganda. Yeah, if I remember, and Corinne, maybe you can speak to this, that that house of detention known as the Tombs mm -hmm. was viewed as one of the most um, one of the most difficult, despicable kinds of places of incarceration, wasn't it? Pretty deplorable conditions, um, as was Angola. Well, oh, Angola, Angola yeah. <laughs> Yep. Much worse, but they yeah. ended up tearing down the tombs, I think. The tombs are still around. They are still mm -hmm. there and they're still They're still called used. the tombs, yep. The wow. conditions are improved somewhat, now. but... Um, oh, but, I didn't yeah. realize that. I thought they had torn yeah. them down. Yeah. Oh, my. So after those riots and you were there for a while, 
When did you end up back in New Orleans? Uh, I think it was in uh, 1970. And you were in just a parish prison at that point? Well, it, or? again, you know, at that time, there were these clashes between Black Panther Party and, and police department or whatever. In New city. Orleans? Yeah. And, and, and another brother named uh, uh, Ronald Ellsworth, they established parties a chapter of the Black Panther Party uh, in New Orleans. And the same thing, you know, the police tried to force their way in, uh, and there there was a shootout, and so they were placed in a, what's called OPP, Orleans Parish Prison. And they took a, uh, and put them on a tier. The actual tier was called C1. Right. What they did, they put metal plates over all the windows and stuff. It was like a tomb because they were trying to isolate the you know, members of the party that were there. And you had some female members, but they were in another uh, section. Uh, so they had you all together at that point. Yeah. Well, if, when I come from New York, because of my activities and organizing and stuff, and, you know, like I say, they had already labeled uh, me a panther. That's what they had, you know, in my in my prison record. So when I got to New Orleans, then what they did is they actually put me on the chair with the members from the New Orleans chapter. Right. And uh, which made it you, was there. Which made you closer to all of them. Yeah. It was there that you know I actually joined the Black Panther Party. You know. And, and it, I was so impressed because. A guy in leadership, I'm afraid he's no longer with us. His name was Charles. And he one day we were sitting down talking, and he said, you know, why why haven't you joined the party? You know, he said, you're kind of a man that, you know, the party looking for. And I'm like, I'm in prison. He said, well, that don't make a difference to the party, you know. We see the the quality of the, of the, of the person, not, you know, what position they hold or where they at, you know. I think the term was used then was like lumping, which means work. Right. And lumping proletariat was someone, you know, who had a prison record or was in prison, you know. So I was very impressed by that, that they saw something in me, you know, because the Panthers in New Orleans had been in contact with the Panthers in, in New York, and they had, you know, nothing but good things to say about me. and. So Charles submitted the paperwork to the Central Committee, which was located in Oakland at the time. And about two weeks later, I got confirmation that I was now an active member of the Black Panther And you Party. became a, a prison leader at that time within that group? No, well, the lead, guy that was in leader's name was Charles Scott. Charles you know? Scott. But yeah. I don't mean the leader, but you were part of the Yeah, I, I the joined the leadership. collective. He had time to use collective, you know, yeah. So I'm trying to... I don't. I'm curious as to why then were they trying to break up that group? Is when they sent you to to Angola as part of your sentence? Well, while I was back in in OPP because of my uh, experience, and so actually I started criticizing them because the conditions were horrible. Right. In OPP, and the fact that they had allowed themselves to be isolated on tier and putting metal uh, uh, things on, on the windows and stuff like that. So I actually, during a meeting, we used to have meetings every day, I actually started criticizing, you know, some of the members, you know, how can you live like this? How can you 
allow these people to separate you from the people, you know, and and stuff. So, uh, you know, it was bed bugs everywhere. The the food was slop. Right. Uh, there was no legal, no no virtually non-existent. Uh, Nothing to uh, read. Medical right? thing, you know, like the doctor used to come in like once a week, and would see the whole whole parish prison. Uh, anyone had a complaint, you had to fill out what was called a sick call, and turn it in. And so this doctor would come in and like you, you know, depending on, you know, uh, how far down your list was whether or not you saw him because he's used, he practiced doctor hours, you know, he'd come in about eight or nine o'clock and three or four o'clock he was gone. If he didn't get to you, you didn't get to see Till next week. Yeah. So you were criticized, you became someone that criticized what was happening in that parish prison. Yes. And was it the parish prison, um, I don't know what you call them, the head of the parish prison who decided to make the transfer for you? To well, after, after we had the uprising. Overall, oh, there was an uprising yeah. there as well. And there was a lot of press uh, at the time. There was a woman city councilman named uh, uh, Dr. Daniels. And she had made prison reform a part of her, her platform and so you know we held a collective and we we discussed and it was acknowledged that my criticism was valid and that you know uh, they needed to do something to draw the attention of society and particularly mass media so uh, it was decided that uh, we would take a hostage so the, actually the officer that worked, the tier, he was working with us. So he had agreed to, you know, to play the role of being taken a hostage. And so that, that morning, you know, uh, we opened one of the cells and he went back. They handed us his keys. Oh, he agreed to do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, young, young black guy, you know. Well. And during that time, you know, uh, social struggle was pretty much running the rampant across All the country. All over the country. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we contacted the, uh, uh, there's a, a mic system where the officer can contact the front, which central part of the jail where all the, you know. And so we got on there and we said, look, you know, we have an officer the hostage and we want to see, you know, uh, some members of the press and stuff to talk about what's going on in this, in this dead camp, you know. And... Uh, we knocked the metal plates off the windows so that we could have access to the press. And eventually, uh, I think the next day, uh, Dr. Taylor and some of the members of the press came. Uh, the wreck yard between C tier and A side. And so we talked to her through the memo, through the window. And he talked to him and he told him, you know, I'm all right, I haven't been harmed or anything. So we were able to put before the people what was going on in the parish prison. And pretty much the whole city went up and the city council started demanding uh, changes, changes and wow. demanding heads, you know. And so being a part of that, they couldn't send uh, the other members of the party because they hadn't even been to trial. Eventually they were found not guilty. Uh, so I was the only one on the tier who had a prison sentence. 
Oh, the other was the other ones who they brought in because they were Black Panthers. Well, they had a shootout. Right, for these, but, but they, they will be go. in hell for trial. Gotcha. And so, uh, so since you had a prison record, they would pin it on. Yeah, you I had a sentence. Like, I had a fifty-year yeah. sentence. You remember, I right. escaped. Right. And so they, uh, their their retribution was to send me to prison. To Angola. Yeah. And was Herman also? Herman was on another tier. Was he sent at that time too, or? Uh, no, I think he came maybe a week or so later. For a different reason, or? Well, you know, the riot. Whatever the riot he, was. He also. organized the tier he was on. Oh, gotcha. So it wasn't just the Panther tier that went up; it was the whole, the whole prison. prison. Yeah, we had, you know, prior to that, you know, we had communicated with other tiers and stuff, with letters and 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 you know, trustees would transport letters from one tier to another. And explain what what we were trying to do and what. So you were you were transferred with with Herman to, well a week later, but you were transferred to Angola, and and you were in the general population there, I assume. Well, at first, well at first at that time the process in Angola. If you ever see pictures of Angola, you see this big white camp at I the front. I have, and it's scary looking. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the name of the building is RSC, which stands for Reception Center. Right, and at that time they still used to process guys who come into prison through that building, and the average stay was like thirty days. Oh, I see. You know, and then in that interim, you know, they find out where they was gonna house it, what kind of job you was gonna get, and you know, and then they, you know, once a new look, a new, you know, once they notify all the other parishes in New Orleans that they were about to empty the building so everyone in that building went in the what's called population and then they would bring in you know a couple of hundred more guys and they would start processing right. them well in that in that time that 30 day time you had a lot of uh, rapes going on and and, 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 and guys uh, beating guys up taking you know their property right. and stuff so right off the bat I started speaking out against that and trying to, you know, show the guy, look, we being made victims of already. Now we make we victimizing each other, you know. Right. And, you know, so So you were educating the other prisoners yeah. as well. Yeah. About the term we were using back then was raising the level of consciousness. Yes, consciousness. Making people level aware right. you know, of, of what we what they were doing. And we got some resistance and we got some at least I got some resistance and support because Harmon Hadn't hadn't been transferred to Angola, right. yet. and uh, Robert. After the Brent Miller, you know, I was I was put in solitary because of an investigation of the Brent Miller murder. Right, I was going to get to that. That yeah. that what happened was you were there, and also Robert was Robert wasn't anywhere near that. He was a hundred something miles. He, he was in Orleans Parish. But what happened? The key thing that got. This is the journey to solitary that I was trying to yeah. sort of drive at. So what happened was you were there because of the uprising in the parish prison. You were in Angola. And then all of a sudden, this Brent Miller, who's a white prison guard, is murdered. Yeah. And they pin the murder on you and Herman and Robert, who was nowhere well, near. Well, they never charged him. Oh, they never charged no, them? No, but they put him in on the use investigation. So it was only an investigation all those yeah, years. Yeah, well, that's what they used. Eventually, it was uh, Harmon, myself, 
was another guy called Gilbert Montague, which was the only one that was found not guilty. Right. And that would happen because uh, a captain in rank testified that he couldn't have did it because he was in, in the hospital right. that right. morning. And so, you know, the jury found him not guilty, but it, it found a, a Harmon guilty. So Robert was brought from a whole different prison. A whole different Where parish, he wasn't even yeah. near the, the murder. Uh, 107 miles away. And, and they brought him in for investigation, and they never charged him with anything. Well, when he came into prison, of course, he went, you know, to an RC. And uh, they, they classified him the uh, solitary, or the term is CCR, closed right. cell restriction. And he was a panther as well. And they knew that. Yeah. I mean, that really was the reason, right. you know. Uh, uh, I mean, they knew all the guys who were in prison who had joined the party. Exactly. And so they, uh, he spent 29 years out of 32 in solitary confinement. He was only released in 2000 when his case was overturned. Right. And he, and you kept close in touch with him even after he got released. He was a... Well, at first, all three of us were on different tiers. But eventually, they put him on the same tier, what it was called, D tier. Right. And uh, we spent almost 17 years together on the same tier. And, but Harmon, uh, they actually had a court order that said Harmon and I would never be housed in the same place, not allowed to visit together, not allowed to see uh, our attorneys together and stuff, you know. And when Corinne and George and all them got involved with our case, they actually had to go to the file something in the court to get them to force them to let me and Harmon visit with them at the same time. Right, because you were co-defendants yeah. in this case, I assume. Um, well, this begins the journey of you being in solitary for, was it 42 years, I believe? 44 years. 44 years. Yeah. The longest person ever to be in solitary confinement, yes. if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, you, you appeared at Books and Books last night, and we had an event last night, and you said something so interesting when somebody said, how are you not angry? And you looked at her and you said, I am angry. Yeah. I'm just not bitter. Yes. Really interesting. And, it, and that led me to something that I think either you said or is in the book. And you talk about how you turned your cell from a place of confinement into a place for personal growth. Yes. And that is a lot of what got you through these 44 years. Yeah, Can you, you know, talk, talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, I, I use the term self-education because the education I got in public schools was virtually non-existent. But I always was a bright, energetic kid. I always was, you know, my mom used to use the term, I was too strong will, you know, and... Uh, so, you know, the cell that was meant to be a debt chamber for all three of us, you know, we turned it into high schools and universities and debate halls and, and, and law, eventually a law clinic. Uh, when we decided that we couldn't just re keep resisting physically, uh, we decided we had to fight on, on another front. And so we decided, as I say, Robert had a little knowledge 
of the court system and stuff. And so we eventually decided we would teach ourselves the law, uh, both uh, civil and criminal law. Well, for those for those who are not who haven't read the book yet, it's pretty remarkable that you were able to do this because what a lot of people don't know until they read the book is that what solitary confinement really means. And, and what it means is... You're housed in a cell 23 hours out of 24 hours. And you get one hour, one hour outside the cell. Yeah. It doesn't even mean outside. It's just outside Well, the, the hallway. Uh, right. We didn't even have a yard then. We eventually filed a civil suit and forced them to give us uh, three days a week uh, outdoor exercise. And the cell is like six by nine, I think. Six by nine, but actually the space in it is, is much uh, smaller oh, because you have two beds. mellow bunks attached to one wall, a mellow table and bench attached to the other wall. And at the back of the cell there's a zinc commode combination. So you only have this narrow path to move up and, and down the cell. Well, it's uh, it's astonishing to think about, and and the the kind of strength that you have shown for all of those years has to come from a particular place. And you talked a little bit about it. You know, you talked about your mom last night. Yeah. And why don't you talk about her as well, and what my, my what mom, she gave you, and what she yeah, infused she, you in know, you. know, at the time I was just another rebellious teenager, and I didn't realize at the time. The, the principles and values that she was trying to, uh, you know, teach uh, me. I saw it as a way of her trying to control my life and stuff, so automatically I rebelled, you know. Um, in, the, in the front of my book is a poem called Echoes that I wrote as a tribute to my mom, but really it's a tribute to, a tribute to all the moms uh, on this planet, you know, the old the sacrifices they make and stuff. And she understood the dangers, you know, even when you were a little boy, well, yeah. of what a young black boy needs to watch out for. I mean, I think somebody was telling me a story. I don't know if it's in the book. All of this is blending together. But when you were with her as a young boy and she saw a policeman come by. Yeah, we were standing. Uh, I stayed on a street called Villery. And the two parallel streets were Dumaine and Saint. So we stayed on Villery between Dumaine and Saint Philip. And right on Dumaine, right off of uh, Villery, there is a bus stop. And, you know, so one day my mom and I was standing there you know, waiting for the bus. And the police, we used to patrol a black neighborhoods very heavily back then. They were very uh, racist, very brutal. And uh, they had a quarter system in which they had to make so many arrests a week. And so, you know, they would just scoop up black men and charge them with vagrancy or loitering or something, you know, even, even when they had jobs and stuff. And so as the police was coming down to Main Street, closer they got, I was standing on the side of my mom, and she reached over. And the closer they got, she started to put me, put me behind her as if though her body could shield me from the danger that these police represented. And as they, you know, got, and eventually I was behind her, and they, as they began to pass us, she began to move me on, on the other side, you know. And at the time, I, I didn't understand what was going on, you know. And uh, 
But yeah, that that's the kind of danger that the police uh, represented at that time to black people. That you know, a mother would try to shield her child from them using her own body if necessary. And at the same time, she gave you a strength to be able to put up with whatever you had to put up with. Well, you know, it's so strange, and I talk about it in Echoes, you know, that, as I said, I was, you know, grew in in my teens, so I saw this as a way of her trying to control me. I never really understand what she she was doing, the battle she was waiting to protect me and my brothers and my sister and stuff, you know. And the example she made, you know, uh, she couldn't read or write. She was a victim, like most blacks, of the uh, racist economic policies in, in the country. And so she had to do things that, you know, uh, she stole, she turned tricks. She did whatever it was to protect us. And although we lived in, in you know, uh, poor neighborhoods, we never felt poor. We never, I can't remember a time of being hungry or not having adequate clothes like so many of my friends in the neighborhood. And uh, But I was also aware of some of the things she did. And there was a time that, you know, when I went to school, uh, they taught a class that was called civil, civil service or something like that. And so I was actually educated, and I started to hate and disrespect my mom because of the the thing that she had to do to provide us with food and shelter and medical care and stuff were, you know, talked about in civil service as being, you know, uh, people without moral fortitude and stuff, you know. And so, you know, in in my teen years and, and really in my stupidity, you know, it's, it's affected the way I related to my mom. Of course. And so, you know, I am happy to say that all the, all the things she taught by example were inside of me. I just didn't know how to find them. And it caused, I assume, those are the kinds of things you drew upon when you were confronted yeah. with this horrific situation that beat down lots of weaker people. Uh, or even strong people, but who couldn't deal with it. Yeah. People in solitary who go go insane. Well, it became the foundation, right, for everything that I, you know, went through, everything I accomplished, everything I survived, and and, and even now, I still hear echoes of my mom' wisdom. And I, I think yeah. what I picked up from the book and from hearing you talk last night is she also gave you a sense of family and the importance of family. Yeah. Your brother was a huge rock. My brother Michael, uh, during this for whole forty-four thing. years and ten months, he didn't miss a month visit, and he visited wow. every month. There was one, one uh, uh, about a year span where he uh, was victimized by the police, and he was sentenced. They caught him with a, a marijuana or cigarette or something, and sentenced him to three years in prison. Oh, God. And he did a year and made parole. And, like, he got out. At that time, visiting used to be from Wednesday to Sunday. And he got out Monday. And that Wednesday, he was visiting with me. You know, But we kept in contact when he was in prison. You know, we wrote four or five letters a week. You know, we maintained our relationship. And then you discovered this kind of extended family as well with... 
Herman and with King, yeah. and all of you became known as the Angola Three, basically, while you were all in solid. Well, I knew Herman and King from from being in all us were in, in right. In, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that they became a part of your family as well. And st- yeah, that st- that uh, I would I would hate to even think how my life would have turned out had it not been for the friendship. You know, first it started out as a com- comradeship. We both were members of the party. And we were obligated to support one another. But that eventually grew grew into bonds of friendship and trust that I, I don't I can't imagine another relationship between men such as ours. Right. We virtually would have given our lives for one another. And and from the time uh, that started to, until it, it, even now, Robert is still alive. We lost Herman three days after he won his freedom. He spent 41 years in solitary. The, the term we use is uh, they never broke faith. They never lied to me. They never betrayed my trust. They never failed to you know, respond to me whenever I needed help or support. And and I think also, the then it, then it became even a broader, bigger family of all of those people who worked with you to get the release, your release, Herman's release. Well, we and had we had two uh, time to use the support committees, and the responsibility of the support support committee is to get lawyers, raise money to pay for lawyers and investigators, but most of all is to keep to expose the lies that usually the state uses and to humanize us, to make us, uh, make the community realize that, you know, we didn't come from another planet. We came from families, we came from mothers. And we were brothers and fathers and grandfathers and uncles and aunties and grandmothers. And to try to keep that connection that we had fought so hard to be stay connected with society, so that's was the role of the support committee. And the journey to get you out of prison was a roller coaster. It was um, filled with ups and downs, close calls, and maybe Corrine can talk a little bit about that. In a, in a oh, yeah, not to sure. give it all away yeah. from the book, but maybe you can speak a little bit about that. Absolutely, as yeah, to, from the legal process. Yeah, I mean, it was... Not that that Albert couldn't talk about it because he was basically a lawyer in... in Oh, yeah, he was co-counsel. He was co-counsel. I mean, sometimes it felt Sisyphean. And, you know, I came in, I I like to say, you know, I got to carry the baton across the finish line, but there was a long lineage of lawyers who worked on Albert and Herman and King's cases for decades um, before me and alongside me even. Um, But... Uh, you know, Albert's conviction was overturned three times right. in this in the in the span so, of these four decades, so four plus decades. So the must have been there, and then yeah, the collapse. You know, my case was actually the first new trial I won was based upon a a writ that Robert Robert King uh, put together and filed. Wow. And uh, and the second time my case was uh, overturned, and I think the Fifth Circuit. We voiced that. So I had one issue left. We were down to our last yeah. possible card. 
Um, and, and, and it was, we had, you know, uh, we had a, a, a judge. His name is James Brady. He's deceased now. And I got a chance to meet with him after I was free. Uh, I've never seen a judge like him, you know. While he didn't favor us, whatever the law said we should have, he gave it to us. And prior to that, uh, we had a, what, Tyson, huh? Right. We had a judge who, like most judges, always side with, with the attorneys. With the prosecution. Uh, yeah, the prosecution. Or, I think it was even worse than just always siding with the prosecution, but often just sitting on the papers. Right. So when you would look at the timelines, there would be these gaps of time of like five, six years before you get a ruling on a motion. So there was just this like, you know, not only did you have to fight on the facts and on the law, but also on just delay. There was yeah. a sense that I had in reading the book that the state, the, the people in Angola, the prosecutors were just hoping you'd go away. They were well, hoping, hoping we die. They were hoping you die before yeah. it, and they weren't giving you the kind of medical treatment that you wanted. Certainly, Herman came very well, close. Yeah, Herman. Herman made it out, but died three days later, basically. Yeah, uh, Herman uh, started losing a lot of weight, and the lawyers became concerned. And when they couldn't get answers from the medical staff and the administration in Hunts, which was the prison he was in, uh, they decided to go to court and get permission to bring in a private attorney. Right. So once that happened, they they knew that it was up. And so they rushed Harmon to a hospital and got the diagnosis. You're right. And even then it was back and forth, right? Because they wouldn't let him out, and then you had to fight at the court yeah. to get him out, and then finally the judge wouldn't leave, and I think you were very yeah. involved with that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was and, non and then finally they let him go. It reminds me of that Greek poet who has a two-line poem, you did everything you could to try to bury me, and you right. forgot that I was a seed. Um, yeah. That would always remind me of my That's clients here line. because yeah. Yeah. they were unrelenting, um, yeah. And I think in this, in the last team of lawyers that that could work on these cases, you know, they came across some well-resourced, strong team of attorneys who were equally unrelenting. Um, so we just went toe for toe the whole time. And when did you know that it was like a done deal that Albert would be getting out? When? What was the the last? pass you through so to speak right well we had filed in the supreme court um and we were working on i mean this goes to show why elections matter we were hoping that there would be a reasonable resolution with the new louisiana attorney general and that year uh the former attorney general was did not win his election i think he'd been attorney general Twice. like 12 years yeah. <laughs> um and so we finally had a new decision maker um, who was prepared to plead Albert to what they call an Alfred plea, which allows you to plead that the state has enough evidence to make a case against you, it's but like not... No, it's like a no contest. Exactly, sort of, exactly. Yeah. Like a, non, a no contest plea. Um, and that was the, you know, and for time served, and that was the, and that was the little tiny window that we needed. And one little like 
nerdy lawyer footnote that I always want to work into these conversations because I think it's so important is that Albert and Herman were convicted in this small window of time where the death penalty was not allowed, prohibited as unconstitutional uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1972. So part of why they ended up in solitary, our theory always has been, and the evidence supported it, was that it was retribution for the fact that they could not be prosecuted as capital crimes and they could not be put to death. So I think at one point in one of Herman's boards, he was explicitly told, we're, we're going to keep you in solitary for the rest of your life since we can't execute you. Um, and I think what's important about that is that it took the decades for us to get their convictions overturned for us to be able to show that they were wrongfully convicted. If we, if they had been executed, they would be like so many others where we would never have a chance to vindicate their rights. Well, actually I had been convicted, if you remember. Under, before before the 1972? About sentencing. So they could only sentence me to life instead of the death penalty, which they intended to do. Uh, you know, under Louisiana law, there's a brief period between when you found guilty and when they sentenced you. And uh, so why they uh, why they were so waiting? Just for me, made that. Yeah, the just made it under that window. Outlawing the death penalty, which is the eloquent case for against the death penalty. Absolutely, full stop. Albert wouldn't be sitting here with us no, if that were the case. Long gone, long Completely, gone. Completely. <laughs> you know, unjustifiable, which has happened to so many people over so many years. So, so you're out. So, and you said something last night, which I, it stuck with me all day. So after you were released, you know, other than technology, what changed in nothing. society that you saw? Nothing. And that's, that was the probably one of the biggest shocks. You know, I spent 44 years in, and uh, 10 months in solitary. Uh, I, was, I felt connected to society. I felt as, as much a part of society as any man or woman, a child walking uh, the streets of, of society. And so I didn't have that realistic view. And when I got out, I think in a matter of three years, no, three months uh, observing the inner workings of uh, American. I realized that the only thing that had changed was everything had become coded. And it went from the physical brutality to a institutional brutality in which policies became nightsticks. And, 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 you know, um, it is a known fact that individual racism can only be empowered by institutional racism. And institutional racism can only be affected in the systemic way it's applied to individual people or, or, or groups of people in society. And so, uh, you know, uh, it's strange. You know, Corinne and, and them put together and she's really not taking credit for it. I mean, she's one of the greatest writ writers I ever seen because her responsibility was to respond to whatever defense the court, uh, the, uh, the state of Louisiana was using in the appeal process. And they, they won what's called a, uh, what it was? Uh, extraordinary writ. 
extraordinary writ. It, it was a writ. I think the history of it was from the Civil Service, a uh, Civil War when uh, uh, the South was still trying to, you man, and and so the the legislature gave judges their power to stop states from doing certain things or ordering them to do certain things. Very seldom ever uh, used, very seldom ever granted. And Corinne and them were able to get Judge Brady granted our writ. And we, in and, effect, also got, I mean, now, now yeah. today, <laughs> we also, in effect, got an extraordinary writ with Herman's case because the judge ordered that he be released immediately. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, is <clears throat> really, I'm not aware of his, that ever. He didn't even wait in his office until, mm -hmm. until we knew exactly. that Exactly. We, we ended up needing to call him um, in chambers to let him know that, you know, the prisoner administration was refusing to release him, notwithstanding that he had explicitly added it into his order, um, requiring an immediate release and he waited we we thought we were going to have to you know file a motion to compel and that this was going to you know go down to the wire because Herman was really we thought he might pass that day he ended up living for three more days but um but we just really didn't know how much time he had left and so we were waiting outside the prison gates with an ambulance and the writ and the phone and it was a standoff to see whether or not they were going to violate a federal court's orders expressly um, you know it was so uh what was so extraordinary about that we were scheduled for giant attorney visit Hyman was in the uh, hospital and he had he had decayed to the point where he was you know so he was trying to use that as a means not to allow us to have the visit. And uh, you know, knowing how the prison system worked and everything, I agreed to wear a black box and not take it off in order for them to grant the visit. And so, just people might not know, but that's just a very painful uh, yeah. restraint. Well, you described yeah. a lot of the torturous kinds of things that yeah. you had to subject yourself to. But this time... I actually stayed in the black box a total of 20 hours. Oh, wow. And I actually had lost feeling in my hands for weeks. And when I went to the doctor, you know, they're like, oh, that's just nerve damage. You know, you'll, it'll grow out of it and it's stuff. It's just you know? nerve damage. <laughs> yeah, and it, it did, but it took months before I could feel with my hands again. Right. Or have complete control, you know. That happened with your legs too, right? I mean, yeah. you before you know, I, re I remember reading. They wouldn't give me the proper medication, right. and I, my body started retaining a fluid. Right. And it started in my ankles, and it started moving up my legs, and moving up, uh, you know. Eventually, had you know not the lawyer's intervention and 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 and, and threatening to go to court and stuff. Uh, they wouldn't have taken me to the hospital and got the proper diagnosis and, and given me the proper uh, medication. Yeah. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough for writing this book. And you've been on a wide tour. The book is doing really, really well. I think it's in its third printing now or something. And is there any surprising thing that you've discovered while on tour? Is there anything about the audiences or any or the response? Is there anything that maybe has taken you by surprise over these last few months? 
I think the lack of knowledge by the average American citizen on what's really going on in prisons. The prison, the prison system has had hundreds of years to shape the narrative about prison. And it has worked because people forget that prisoners don't come from another planet. They come from households. They, they come in this world from their mother's womb. And as I said earlier, you know, that they, they, they're not aliens from another planet. They fathers, grandfathers, uncles, brothers, grandmothers, aunties and stuff. And uh, so, you know, Robert and I, we feel it is a part of, of our commitment to social struggle is to try to start a, a narrative, start a conversation where people start remembering, uh, you know, where these prisoners come from. And so that, that is, uh, you know, the most uh, uh, shocking thing to me is the fact is that people have no idea what is going on in prisons in their name and that they're tax dollars. You know, in, in essence, a mother and a father who works and pay taxes, they're paying for the brutality of their own child. Right. They are paying for their child to be hidden away in solitary confinement for de decades. Yeah. Well, this is why your voice is so important and why your voice, and I can tell and from what you've said, this is not something that is going to end with the publication of this book. I'm sure it's no. something you're going to continue to educate people on. It's time to come home. I, just thought, I also thought a cool way to end it would be that you are a remarkable writer as well, and your poetry, as as seen in, in, in the book, is kind of fantastic. And as someone said last night, I hope you publish a collection of poetry at some point. <laughs> um, and as Corrine pointed out last night, although we've missed Mother's Day, we haven't missed Haitian's mothers, Haitian Mother's Day, right? That's, that's this Sunday, that's true. I that's believe. That's Sunday. Yeah. Would you read the poem for us yeah. in the book? I would love that, if you would. Echoes, echoes of wisdom I often hear, a mother's strength softly in my ears. Echoes of womanhood shining so bright, echoes of a mother within darkest night. Echoes of wisdom on my mother's lips, too young to understand, it was in a gentle kiss. Echoes of love and echoes of fear, Arrogance of manhood wouldn't let me hear. Echoes of heartache I still hold close as I mourn the loss of my one true hero. Echoes from a mother's wounds, a mother's womb, heartbeat held so dear, life begins with my first tears. Echoes of footsteps taken in the past, echoes of manhood standing and standing in a looking glass. Echoes of motherhood, gentle and near. Echoes of a lost mother, I will always hear. That's beautiful. So that, you know, was a poem that I wrote. And, you know, usually when you're writing poetry, you're finding or you're searching for something that, that rhymes or, or has a meaning. And I wrote this poem in one setting. It just came right out. Yeah. 
Albert, thank you so much for being on The Literary Life. And Corrine, thank you as well. Of course, my pleasure. A wonderful afternoon. Thank Thank you. you.